0: Amen. Please remain standing and open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Our sermon today will be an introduction to the uh, letter of 1 Corinthians, and our reading this morning will be 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ their Lord and ours grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ this ends our reading and you may be seated welcome if you're visiting with us typically we go through books of the Bible i um, expositionally today we begin a new series an exposition of the book of 1 Corinthians. So much of our time this morning, beloved, um, will be spent introducing this epistle so that we have the necessary background to handle the issues that Paul addresses throughout this letter. Um, That which is critical... For biblical interpretation is threefold: Context, context, context. Because it, it is the meaning of the scripture that is the scripture. If you don't have the meaning, you don't have God's word. I've met many people over the years who claim to just love God's word. They say, oh, I love the Bible. But after sitting under sound teaching, that is expositional preaching, many of them prove to not really love the word when they hear what it means by what it says. It's one thing to know what it says. It's another thing to know what it means. Now, the way that we interpret the Bible is both grammatical And historical, grammatical, that has to do with the interpretation um, and exegesis of any given text, but all of that work is done um, in the context of the historical setting. Without historical context, you create all kinds of exegetical fallacies, and you end up making hash out of the text. Therefore, it is essential to understand the background of books of the Bible. Um, 1 Corinthians is one of those books that is terribly taken out of context, especially by those who desire to see and to experience charismatic sensationalism. They shred the text not knowing context. So although historical background is necessary for every book of the Bible, sometimes it is even more essential for certain books of the Bible, and 1 Corinthians is one of those books. Now, regarding this epistle, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, oftentimes when a pastor or elders of a church shepherd a a troublesome, difficult congregation a cast of troublemaking um, you know contentious complainers they will typically do a series on first corinthians now rest assured beloved that is not why we are doing a study in first corinthians because pacific hope church for the most part is a loving doctrinally sound Christ-centered, gospel-loving body of believers. That's what you all are, most of you. All of our members, for sure. <laughs> Just kidding. Now, our intention in the study of this book is based on another challenge that Paul is facing and that which he addresses to the church at Corinth in the first century, and that is how to live a Christian life in a culture or a city like Corinth. To be a Christian in first century Corinth was a lot like being a Christian in 21st century Southern California. And the similarities between Corinth of Paul's day and Southern California in ours mean that there is much for us to learn from Paul's amazing epistle to the Corinthians. So how long are we going to be at this? Don't even ask. I do not know. Now, although um, serious students of Scripture um, will oftentimes pride themselves on devotion to the study of Paul's epistles... 1 um, Corinthians is often overlooked. Not seeing it as a theological powerhouse like Romans or Ephesians or even Galatians. But 1 Corinthians is one of Paul's most weighty epistles of theology. In the service of the church. In one of the most profound letters of of theology that is applied to the church. And in it, Paul takes his theology and he applies it vigorously to the church of Jesus Christ in Corinth, applicable to us to this day. Are you with me? All right. Now, although there is a lot of rebuke um, inc- and correction throughout this epistle, the primary exhortation is in line with the old um, adage of wanting them to be in the world and not of the world. In fact, many of the issues um, prompting Paul to write to the Corinthians, we are facing this very day. So they are very much um, like us. So in our context, 1 Corinthians is every bit as significant as is the book of Romans. We must not forget, Gordon Fee, in his commentary, said this, "Um, The city of Corinth was the New York, Las Vegas, and Los Angeles of Paul's day all rolled into one. End of quote. Now with that understanding, Paul is bringing the theology of the cross to bear upon the lives of these people, the church at Corinth. He wants their lives to be shaped by the cross. We'll see this over and over again as we work our way through these chapters. And that is to live according to their new identity, to live according to their calling the called-out ones, the church. We've been called out of the world and brought in to Christ. So he calls them to live out a cross-centered, Christ-centered life, right there where you live and breathe. So for us, our lives also um, will be shaped By the cross of Christ, as we work our way through, I'm growing as we ought with a greater, deeper knowledge of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Paul writes, verse two, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. Believers, you are saints. Did you know that? You are saints. With all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, according to Acts, we just finished the book of Acts, according to Acts chapter 18 and verse 1, Paul visited Corinth during his second missionary journey. And on the heels of... Um, of his visit to Athens, you remember, with with the philosophers on Mars Hill, um, was really not a booming success. So he enters Corinth um, in fear and trembling. Now, Paul was at Corinth for a year and a half. Chapter 18, verse 11, informs us of that fact. And we read that he was teaching the word of God among them. Teaching the word of God to those in Corinth. And while he was there, remember the Lord assured him, Paul... If that is through a vision. I have many people in this place. What did you mean by that? I have many, many that are mine who have not yet come to faith. Chapter 18, verse 10, the book of Acts. So um, it was the doctrine of divine election that became the basis for Paul's efforts of evangelism in the city of Corinth. And we see people coming to faith. Now, Paul will later write his epistle to the Corinthians from Ephesus, and it's actually a response to a letter that they had written to him. We learn about that in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. Now, according to Leon Morris, he said this, quote, "...the immediate occasion of the epistle was the letter Paul had received from the Corinthian church, for which a reply was necessary." But what mattered much more to Paul was clearly the news that had come to him independently of the letter, i.e. from Chloe's house, do you remember, who were traveling through Ephesus. We see that in chapter 1, 1 Corinthians verse 11. There were disquieting irregularities in the conduct of the believers at Corinth, Morris goes on to say. Paul was troubled by the tendency on the part of some believers to make the break with pagan society as indefinite as possible. The church was in the world, as it had to be, but the world was in the church, as it ought not to be. So much did this matter to Paul that he spends six chapters dealing with it before he so much as touched on the matters about which they had written him, end of quote. And then in chapter 7, verse 1, we read, now concerning the things about which he wrote. Seven chapters, or six chapters, he addresses news that he receives from Chloe's household. Okay, so now, um, let's consider the history of Corinth. And again, this is all introductory this morning. The history of Corinth, which is really the history of two cities. Because originally, Corinth was established back in the Greek days. It was a Greek city-state. It was a Greek city-state in league with other city-states, and what they were doing at the time is that they were standing in opposition to Rome, not militarily because they'd be destroyed, but they were standing in opposition in wanting to remain independent. They did not want the taxation of Rome to be laid upon them. That's old Corinth. Corinth was the leader of what was known as the Achaean League, this group of city-states standing against Rome. Rome demanded that they disband this United League, but they refused to do so. So in 146 BC, Rome came in, killing the men, taking women and children and selling them off into slavery. They absolutely leveled the city, burning and raising it, R-A-Z-E, raising it to the ground, and it remained uninhabited for 102 years. They destroyed it. When Julius Caesar came on scene in 44 B.C., he decides to rebuild Corinth on top of the ruins of Old Corinth. And it becomes a very, very significant Roman city. So the the geographical arrangement was very unique in connecting two major ports with a a small piece of land, this isthmus, this this neck of land that connects these two ports that was only four-plus miles wide. So look at the map. If you pull up the first slide, please. So there you see the red circle. There's Corinth, the Isthmus there, that very narrow um, section of land where the black dot is was only just four to five miles in length. And you see a port in the south and a port to the north. Now, this made Corinth a, a very desirable, prosperous, wealthy Merchant city. Now, think about this. No one is there for 102 years, so you had no original landowners when Caesar comes in. When Julius Caesar comes in, you don't have generation of family lines who owned property, so over the course of 102 years, there was no deep rooted nobility. So Corinth then becomes a city of very upward, mobile people. You have transients leaving their native lands, and they come here to Corinth to pursue business in in sales, trade, and merchandise. Great opportunity. This place became a boom town. Now, they had the foresight, the Corinthians did at this time, To pave a road across the Isthmus, this four plus mile stretch between these two ports, they built a trolley system to transport cargo from ships in the the south to ships to the north or ships to the north um, from the north to ships to the south. So they would transfer it on land, avoiding that very dangerous journey south down the Peloponnese there, down around towards Crete. Remember, that was very treacherous territory, especially in the time of winter. Paul was shipwrecked, of course. So here, they, they make a road. Look at the next slide. So here you have the, uh, the, 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 the Diakos. Um, um, you have, um, uh, uh, um, it means haulage. You have dia, to, a, to uh, means across, and the um, hocus means portage. So you have haulage, and they built this grooved road, and they would transport all this cargo, and they would also transport very small ships um, from port to port, and that would keep them from Losing ships and cargo and lives at sea. Notice the next slide. So there's the grooved road, and here's an artist's rendition of what they would do with these smaller vessels, and, and um, probably um, pulled by men and not oxen, as far as archaeology can tell us. So you have grooves, they, call, they haul cargo, and that, of course, makes Corinth um, a very strategic um, location for importing and exporting. Are you with me? So here you have Corinth, a, a premier trade center um, in the ancient world, and it also became, therefore, um, the crossroads for ideas and philosophies of men. So, with countless people, Coming from countless places, using your port, they enter in with countless ideas and perspectives. So Corinth became a haven for culture, ethnicity, and religion. It was a major melting pot, Corinth. So because of its commerce um, and its tariffs for using their ports, it was this, this bustling, prosperous Place. It was a boom town. You could strike it rich, and those who came in first and were perhaps the most gifted could easily climb the social ladder um, in the city of Corinth. So, needless to say, um, they thought of themselves as incredibly sophisticated, and from out of that comes incredible pride. You get the picture? So, with many people flocking into Corinth, seeing the opportunity. Um, For success, um, typically, again, those who get there first make the most money, they gain the most power, and then out of it comes the development of two extremes, the very wealthy and the very poor. And it was uh, this ethnic, social, economic, um, very, very diverse um, community We see this reflected in Paul's letter when he says in chapter 12, verse 13, it is for by one spirit that you were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. You know, we read in other letters of Paul, you know, whether you're Scythian or barbarian, whatever you are, you are but one. Whatever rank you have in society, in the church, We all stand on equal ground, for we are in Christ. Now, Corinth was also home to the Isthmian Games, athletic events only a second to um, that of the Olympic Games. So you have a city dominated by um, celebrity athletes. People bow down to these people. Sound familiar? Celebrity athletes. So they they had the prestige, Corinth did, of being this very affluent place who knew how to host guests. Very popular, very wealthy city. So consequently, the value system there in Corinth revolved um, around the idea of status, honor, wealth, and power. And actually, one of the criticisms of Corinth Um, was that it was known for its um, ruthless self-advancement. Now, Paul will address these issues of Corinthian culture uh, based on power, wealth, and status when it all ends up entering the church. Reflected over and over again. Culture is reflected in the body. That is the attitudes and the sins of culture they try to adopt. Just They don't even adopt it. They just carry it into the church. One commentator, David Garland, says this, quote, For some, the Christian community had simply become another arena to compete for status. End of quote. Now, if you lived in the first century um, and you were wealthy, typically, um, archaeology proves that you, you owned a rather large home. And... Churches gathered, guess where? In homes of those who typically were rich because um, they had um, parlors and halls large enough to accommodate anywhere from 50 to 150 people. These open courtyards. Like you could publicly walk by and kind of lean in and check out what was going on. So here they would gather. So if you were wealthy and you opened your home, the temptation would, would be to see yourself as the boss the head, and then that began to create problems of favoritism and factionalism, uh, both of which Paul addresses in this letter. Now, also among the wealthy was the desire to become a patron, that is, a sponsor. So to become a patron as a wealthy person, you would be one who would sponsor say, a traveling rhetorician or a traveling philosopher or even one of these athletes to where you would actually pay their expenses and or salary. So it was very popular to be a sponsor because it gave you certain prestige within the community. Again, that attitude is brought into the church. Now, remember when Paul was in Corinth, how he refused to take money from the Corinthians. Okay, not because he didn't have the right. He had every right. Those who preach and teach and study doctrine, he had every right to be paid, but he did not refuse in in simply trying to be pious to set an example for future pastors. No, he was refusing patronage from the Corinthians Paying his own way, making tents. Why would he do that? Because a patron was a person who, in a real sense, owned you. Paul refused to be owned because with ownership comes certain demands. Paul, let's lighten up the message a little bit. Okay, remember, Paul's preaching the Old Testament. He's preaching Christ from the Old Testament. So, it might be tempting for one of these patrons to say, Lighten the message, pal. Don't tell me there's only one meaning to Scripture. Right? So, it was a wealthy place. Corinth was also a wild place. Wild place. Cosmopolitan city filled with um, numerous religions. The primary religion of the day, of course, was the imperial cult that was Caesar worship. And the Romans really didn't care if you dabbled in other religions. Just so long as you took your little pinch of incense and you said Caesar is Lord, whatever else you do, that's cool. Just don't deny Caesar his lordship. So you had the imperial cult. You had also um, within um, mystery religions. You had those foolish clairvoyants. You had secret knowledge, Gnosticism, and all of it was associated with gross immorality. This is Corinth. Now scattered throughout Corinth were pagan temples. Pagan temples that gave honor to numerous gods and goddesses. And associated with temple worship were temple prostitutes. So idolatry and immorality went hand in hand in Corinth and places like Corinth. So this is what the church is facing. This is what Paul is dealing with when he writes to the church at Corinth. Now, um, along with mystery, the Corinthians were enamored with wisdom and knowledge. Okay? And these are the very things that will fuel their passion for gifts of, the, gifts of the Spirit. This fuels them because what they do is they end up connecting their pagan ideals, which is not biblical wisdom, but they want to elevate themselves in um, showing that they have the showy gifts. You know, the tongues thing that we'll come up on in coming weeks. And that was really, it really became ecstatus, ecstatic um, gibberish, which was very common, guess where? In pagan temples. In pagan temples. And in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 7, we see Paul addressing the issues of giftedness within the church, and he says as he wraps it up, I think about verse 7, that these gifts are given to you by the Holy Spirit for common good, not for you to be a showman, but for the good of the body, and you're parading yourselves. So what they were doing was attempting to synchronize their pagan backgrounds with newfound faith in Jesus Christ, and it turns into hyper-spirituality. Now, because Corinth was filled with wealthy people, in order to network with wealthy people in Corinth, at this day, you didn't go out to the golf course because there weren't any. Nor did you go to a steakhouse, in some room on the side that you rent, but you would go, guess where? To pagan temples. You would associate with the wealthy in pagan temples where the trade guilds met. And they were devoted to the gods and goddesses of the age. So those who were being converted to Jesus Christ come from these pagan backgrounds. That, that is to say, Corinth was not an easy place to live out your Christian life. Are, are we starting to see the picture, beloved? Very challenging. They faced a very difficult struggle to give up long-held practices and traditions associated with paganism there in Corinth. Which would require much Instruction from the Apostle Paul. Now, also within Corinth, um, there was um, a room that was called um, the um, Asclepius room. Okay, so uh, Asclepius was this um, pagan god, this patron god of medicine. So the people would go there with whatever ailment they have, and they would make a, a plaster mold of whatever body part that they wanted this pagan god, Asclepius, to, uh, e- to heal, and they would literally nail it to the wall, and then they would go pray for healing. And it was filled, you, you can look at archaeological photos um, in, in places in Corinth to this day. You have hands and you have feet, and in numerous Unmentionables. Pinned to the wall, they pray for healing. So pagan culture in Corinth was a very superstitious to say the least. Amen. Okay? Just trying to draw a picture here of the things that Paul is dealing with, um, things from the culture that are being brought into the church. Okay. Now, when Paul wrote Romans, he was in Corinth. Okay? When he wrote the church at Rome, he was in Corinth. And look what he says in chapter 16, verse 23. Gaius, host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Notice, Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you. Now, archaeology has discovered an engraved stone that says Erastus from his own money paved this road. Right there in Corinth, that was a campaign pledge that he honored. So, he paves the road with his own money. He, he, he held a very high position in the city of Corinth. He was very wealthy and he had become a member of the church. God saves wealthy people as, as well as poor people. Amen. So here's a wealthy man in the church which would have in that place and that time created a status gap within the church. Now, men in positions of authority, not unlike Erastus, and I'm not saying Erastus has anything to do with what I'm leaning into next, nothing at all, but all I'm saying is that men in positions of authority who were Roman citizens in this day wore togas, you all see how they, they swirl about the waist, they come up over the shoulder and so on. So it would be draped over the shoulder, and then at certain times and certain times only, they would take that cloth off of their shoulder, and they would cover their head, and they called it with covered head. The Latin, capita Velato. Capita head, velato, with veiled head. There's a statue in Corinth of Caesar Augustus wearing a toga draped over his head. See from the shoulder there, it comes up and over his head. Okay, that is to say, it's very important, whenever a group of men gathered, the head of that group, that is one man representing that group, would veil his head at certain times. You can see this here. Next slide. Here's the altar of peace. And you see all these men in togas. The man in the middle has his head draped with the toga. So not all of them would cover their head, but only the officiat of the group that he was representing He would be acting as, say, a priest on behalf of the group. He has his head covered, capita velato, and a Roman, a Roman citizen who was regarded as the leader or the father or the president or the priest of a particular group would cover his head when he went into ritual prayer to the Roman gods. Ritual prayer. To the Roman gods, while practicing augury, that is, they would sacrifice an animal. Augury is, you would sacrifice it, cut it open, pull out, and examine its entrails. You would examine, you know, the heart or the liver, for instance. And you would ask, should we go into battle, or should we not go into battle? Should we go into war? Should we not go into war? So you would sacrifice an animal, examine the heart, examine the liver, and that would be done as the leader covered his head. Good luck, bad luck. Turn to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. And the man is the head of a woman. And God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. So this practice brought in pagan Roman association into the church of Jesus Christ at Corinth, and you have augury, good luck, bad luck, is brought in to the church. Also, this practice would bring in class distinctions into the body of Christ, because only Roman citizens wore togas. So it made Roman citizenship and political influence appear to be important within the church, and it's not. And above all, most important of all, it introduced the idea of a mediator other than the one true mediator, mediator between God and man, and that is the God-man Christ Jesus. Because the one who had his head veiled was the intercessor of the group. Are you with me? Christ is the head of every man. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. Who is his head? Christ. You're disgracing Christ who is your head. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 5, but every woman, better translated wife, who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. See, a veiled woman typically was a married woman in this day. So when a wife would go out in public, she would grab um, a large cloth and cover her head, much like you see Muslim women doing um, in our day. They were married, covered. Now, part of culture in the ancient world was for an adulterous woman to have her head shaved. Verse 5. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have, have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to shave his head, a man not to ought to have his head shaved, Or covered, rather, I'm sorry, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. Therefore, you get down to verse 10, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Angels. Angel is angelos. It's the word messenger. Messenger. Now, the word angels, angelos, here, it can mean an angel from God. That is an angel of God who watches over the church. After all, angels were present at creation when God designed the order of authority and submission. But it can also mean human messenger. John the Baptist was the angelos of God messenger of God. Seven churches of Jesus in the book of Revelation are given to the seven angels or messengers of the church, perhaps most likely the pastors. Okay? So, think about this. If the early church met in homes at this time, they would be large homes with those open atriums, and passers-by could observe... You could literally walk up and see what's going on inside, and they become messengers, angelos, to the world of what's going on in this thing called the way, the church. And it's impressions of immodesty. You get the picture? Now, historical research shows that during this time, there was a great feminist movement within the Roman Empire, and it was so extreme that many women no longer felt bound to anything or anyone, including their husbands. They'd claimed to be free in every way. You see the context, why it's so important? Very important. People throughout American history in the church, have taken this text as an absolute command for women to wear hats to church on Sunday. Hello? This is why context is so important. Paul is dealing with these kinds of things In the church at Corinth, he addresses various cultural practices being adopted into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here then, in Corinth, this cosmopolitan New York, Las Vegas, Los Angeles, all rolled up into one, out of his grace and his mercy, he establishes his church right there in the middle of it all. Verse 2, to the church of God. You get that? This is God's church. Which is at Corinth. To those who have been sanctified. You're set apart, man. Already, positionally. In Christ. Saints by calling. That's what you are. With all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what you are. Their Lord And ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is a reference to God's free gospel gift to us of our salvation in Christ. Grace, unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. While peace comes from the Hebrew shalom, referring to the peace that believers now have with God. The enmity has been removed in Christ. By grace, you have peace with God, believer. You are saints. You are sanctified, set apart. He, he drank the, the cup of God's wrath in your place. The enmity is removed. You have this peace, positional peace, as well as practical, everyday peace with regard to spiritual prosperity because you are in Christ. I said spiritual prosperity. Which blessings are yours, Christian? Christian. All of them. Every blessing in the spiritual places are yours. Now. He says you are saints by calling. You are saints by position. To you here this morning, beloved people of God, those who are in Christ. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've accepted his death and resurrection on your behalf. You are a saint. Now. In Christ. And all, the text says, who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So by definition, you have already been sanctified, as were the Corinthians, in Christ. Done. And Paul's point throughout the epistle is this. Then what are you doing acting as unholy? You are holy, now go live like you're holy. Amen? That's the message over and over again. So you have a group of new Christians assembled together in this city of of Corinth, a very strategic place, a very prosperous place in in the first century. And despite all of their sins and all of their troubles, they are still God's people. By way of grace, what? What? Grace what? Alone. Sola gratia. By grace alone. Sanctified that is set apart once and for all and presently, currently, on, in an ongoing sense, being sanctified. That's why he writes the rebuke, reproof, and exhortation. Because God's people are sanctified by way of God's word. So, Just like here in San Diego 2,000 years later, we join together in this place. We call upon the name of the Lord. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ along with everyone else who has been saved in ages past and ages to come. Whose faith and trust is in the Lamb of God and the Lamb of God alone. So we will have much to learn from this Corinthian culture trying to be brought into the church, and hopefully it will help you understand why we don't do a lot of what other churches do that are born out in the culture and adopted by the church because we are holy. Amen? We're his. If you're not in Christ, and this is all foreign to you, if you're thinking, boy, I better go clean myself up so God will accept me, forget it. You can't get clean enough. You need a cleansing that's provided on your behalf. And it comes by faith and trust in Jesus Christ who shed his blood on the behalf of all those who believe. Repent of your unbelief. Repent of your rebellious sin. Embrace Christ by faith. And you too shall be saved. And we'll grow together in our journey in our little mini Corinth here in San Diego. Amen? Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for history. And uh, wow, it's an amazing thing to hear those words declared at the outset of this letter that they indeed are saints, sanctified. They are God's people, your people, by the blood of Jesus Christ. Help us to learn and to grow from it, also for your glory. In the name of all names, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.